unpack that and, and read some more and, and keep going there. Um, and uh, I really wanted to start with this idea of John chapter 1 and how Jesus is revealed um, because it, it really does set up so much. It just My brain keeps going back to John chapter 1. By the way, something that would be really beneficial for those of you who are kind of taking this book of John journey with us is to periodically, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, just read the whole book of John. Just kind of get the whole gospel at one, at one picture. Because what happens is we go in and we week after week take little snippets. And the way that most cults are formed is you take a snippet of scripture and you base an entire theology off of that one scripture. And so to get the big picture of where we're going, this was read as a, as a single letter or as a single gospel, a single account. So it's just healthy periodically, maybe as a family, just to start working your way through John. And, uh, and that way you can hearken back to where we were back in John 1 and 2 and 3. You also look forward to some things. Some of the things we're going to talk about this morning um, really get hit on later on in, in the gospel. So just a little, little challenge, a little word of advice. But Jesus at the beginning of this is introduced as the word. And there's all kinds of reasons for that and fun kinds of study if you're into that sort of thing of why John did that and who his audience was and what he was trying to accomplish with this. But short, short version is basically that, that he's introduced as the word. The word became flesh. He set up his tent. He set up his temporary dwelling place right here with us in human form. The word preexisted from eternity past. Not only was he with God, the word was God. Right from the, from the beginning, he's setting up where he's going with this. The word was full of grace and truth. And this is who John is revealing as he continues to write chapter after chapter uh, on through to the end. Here's the big idea. We're, we're in John chapter 8. And if you want to just look at John chapter 8, we'll be in 31 right through to the end this week. And here's kind of the, the big idea of, of what's happening here is that Jesus and some believers, and I use that term kind of in quotations, uh, Jesus and some believers basically trade barbs with one another, and neither one of them backs down, and it kind of ramps up more and more until at the very end, um, Jesus just kind of goes for the jugular with this claim about himself, and, um, and the, his opponents pick up rocks to kill him. So that's where John 8's going. And again, if there's a soundtrack, you just have to read this with a soundtrack, because we're used to this with movies, and movies do a good job of this. You can just tell things are getting a little bit more, you know, ramped up and a little bit more confrontational. And, um, and that's what's happening all through, all through John chapter 8 here, and we'll kind of look at that. There's so many subplots that we could go into. We could take John 8 and take lots of weeks, but we're not. But here are the three things I, I just really want to focus on. One is that um, I'm, I'm, behind, I'm behind here on my, on my cute little thing. Um, Here's, here's the first one. One is just that hostility and the gospel just go together. And some people just say, you know what, confrontation is not my thing. Here's what I would, here's what I would suggest to you. Um, you, would, you would probably do better off to pick another master than Jesus if you avoid confrontation at all and every cost. Now, I know that sounds a little bit weird because church people are supposed to be nice and we're supposed to just grow more and more nice. And I think that's just such a lie. I think if that's the end goal for our children, if that's the end goal for us as, as people is to get along with everyone, I think we're heading in a track that may be very, very, very worldly if we don't cause any ripples. Now, many of you know me. Many of you know that I don't tend to go around trying to stir up confrontation. I'm not an overly confrontational guy. That's not my nature. That's not who I am. I tend to like people. I tend to like getting along with people. But if you, read, if you read about Jesus and you, and you sing songs like we've sung this morning, and if you, if you say, take my life and all of me is yours and I want to be just like you, we're going to read about it today. People picked up rocks to kill him. So hostility and the gospel just go together. And we're going to see that here this morning. Here's another one. is that true believers show themselves over time. True believers show themselves over time. Um, it's, it's through conduct. It's through how we act and how we behave and what our actions are. It's not through spiritual lineage, which is the main confrontational point here, nor is it under the, the guise of being a custodian of tradition. Well, I've kept the traditions of my forefathers, and we've been, you know, whatever the label might be, Southern Baptist or non-denominational or Bible-believing folk or whatever you want to put on it, we've been that for generations. 
And that's not anything to do with what a true believer is. And again, we're just going to look at that. Finally, is that God's promises are key. And uh, one of the things I just, I will continue to hit on this, because I think it's so important, and we'll see why this morning. But whenever you read the Bible, ask God, God, what do you want me to learn from this? It's a relationship. He's talking to you. He's speaking to you. So sometimes you read something and just don't just read it for the sake of reading it. Say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? I pray that way for, for this church. I pray that way for me personally. Next week, I'm going to give off the pulpit duties to Rich Henderson. Rich Henderson's going to teach. And I'm going to be sitting probably somewhere over here with my pen out and with a notepad taking notes and saying, God, what do you have for me? And when there's a promise in Scripture, it's not just a flippant promise. It just kind of throws out. We go, oh, yeah, that one. If I sit my kids down and say something to them, and I say, I promise you this, they're going to take notice of that. And I think we do ourselves a disservice to just read the Bible and not look in there and see, what is it, God, that you have for me? Well, let's dive into this. We're going to read the first ten verses of this chunk of Scripture and, um, and just follow along. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, says this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Well, stop there. Hostility in the gospel. Making the news today uh, is Jerusalem and just conflict in the Middle East. And from as long as I can remember as a kid, there's been conflict in the Middle East, right? It's a, it's a recurring headline. And it's been going on for a really long time. You know where the setting is for this? The temple in Jerusalem. And there's conflict going on. And guess what? It's over religious thought. And there's about to be bloodshed because of this. Since before Adam and Eve, uh, there's been an enemy of God. And the scriptures, the scriptures recount this quite clearly. Uh, that, that Satan and his army have been against God and opposing God and against God's people from the very beginning. And when you pick up the story of Genesis and Adam and Eve... That's just the latest chapter of that. And it's not fairy tale, it's not story, it's a real opposing enemy of God that's there. And we see the effects of that. The, the, the thought for us, and again, I kind of alluded to this already, but the thought for us as Christians is to expect opposition. If you have a prayer this year, and I hope you do, I hope you've taken some time to evaluate, it's great when the the calendar turns over to January to reevaluate. One of the things I'm praying that God will do in my life is to grow my intimacy with Him this year. <clears throat> that I would really know and understand the heart of God more fully in 2009 than I did in 2008. And you know what? When you do that, you ought to expect opposition. Uh, I have a guy to my right up here, John Garza. And John, 77 miles on the bike yesterday? Okay. How many... Yeah, give it up for John. How many, how many weeks ago, uh, a cool story, if you don't know John, come find John and ask him about Team Marie. How many weeks ago was it that you took that first bike ride, you said, man, 20 minutes killed me, or whatever it was? Eight weeks ago. Eight weeks later, he's doing a 77-miler. On February 14th, he's doing a century, 100 miles to raise money for, uh, for cancer, for uh, leukemia, right? Leukemia. Um, I know John well enough to know that when he set out to do this, he didn't just think it was going to be a cakewalk. He didn't wake up on February 13th and say, I think I'll ride 100 miles tomorrow. 
Let's get, let's do this thing. And just expect to go out and do it. I know from personal experience that John has times on his bike on a long, boring road, and his mind is telling him, just shut it down. Don't go any further. Your backside hurts really bad. Your back hurts really bad. And there's some numb parts in your hands. Just stop. And part of biking, part of the great thing about biking in any endurance sport is you just go, no. You just put that part to death. And you say no. And you just will your body to keep on going. What a great picture of the Christian walk. And I think sometimes people, people want to claim victory. They want to move forward in their walk. They want to grow their family to be more godly. They want to take spiritual ground that's not been theirs before. And they don't expect opposition. And they get snuffed out. And they get frustrated. And they wonder what's going on. Some of you in this room I know also are grabbing others by the hand and saying, come with me to Jesus. Come with me and get help healthy. And you know what happens? You do that and you set yourself up for this roller coaster ride, don't you? Because we're a complex people, we are. And you grab their hand and you go, no, but please, I'm bringing you to life. I want to set you free. I want to help you. And then they bite your hand and go, knock it off. And you go, no, but really? There's opposition to this. There's opposition. I've heard people who come to this church and they said, Dave, then the first several times I came, I was really angry at you. I said, yeah, I could tell. They said, you could? Yeah. How did you know? I said, well, here's how you looked in the, in the congregation. <laughs> I did? Yeah, you did. I mean, I, it's a small place. I can see you. <laughs> and they said, no, but listen, God's setting me free. God's opening my eyes. God's calling me to a different place. And I go, well, praise God for that. Some of you maybe have had a huge argument this morning as a family. Our family noticed this as a small group came around on Thursday nights. There was all kinds of conflict that seemed to center on Thursday afternoon and night. It was amazing. I remember at one point just kind of pulling back and going, man, we're just in a spiritual war. So expect opposition. That's part of the deal. Jesus models this for us. Part of what I want you to see is how do you handle conflict? How do you handle hostility? How do you handle personal attack when it goes on? We're going to see what what Jesus does here. Here's what's interesting about this. Look at verse 30. This was the whole idea where Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. And at verse 30, it looks real encouraging. It says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. So you're reading along and you say, well, many put their faith in him. And, uh, And then the very next verse, look at this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. So that's who's in dialogue with Jesus right now. And that's super important to catch. Because these are believers. And in a few verses, he's going to call them children of Satan. Okay? Kind of an interesting thing. These are Jewish believers and he's calling them children of Satan? Yes. The ones who have set up shop against Jesus are Jewish believers. Interesting. We know that there are some who didn't believe, Jewish leaders who were unbelieving and would mock people and shame people and threaten people who did believe. But these are now Jewish believers who are, who are drawing a line in the sand and being on the op- opposition side to Jesus. Here's, here's what comes to mind with that and here's what's important for us as a congregation to remember. Sometimes... There are well-meaning people. Sometimes there are people who are feeling like they are saving the dignity of God. That they are keeping the traditions God would uphold. When in fact they are setting up shop against what God is doing. New things tend to threaten church people. It's just the truth. I've been in the church since the day I was born, basically. And when you have new things and new ideas and new people and new programs and a different way of doing things than we did it last decade, that's a threat. Now, part of why that's a threat is because there's a lot of new ideas that are junk. There's a lot of new things that shouldn't be embraced, that shouldn't be talked about, that totally go contrary to Scripture. But what if God starts to do a new thing like he did here two years ago? And it's not how we used to do it. It's not what used to go on. Things aren't the same. 
And when you set up shop to guard the old, you're working against what God's trying to do with the new. It's this idea of new wineskins. And that's why it's important for each and every one of us as a part of the body to be connected to the head and to be receiving words from the Lord and to be praying and be walking in the Spirit. And if we entrust that all to one person or if we don't have checks and balances, it becomes a problem. These people were siding with Satan. That's what you do when you're opposing God, when you're opposing something God is trying to do, you're siding with Satan. That's a pretty bold statement. And these are from people within the church. These are believers. We're going to get to this in a moment, but there's different kinds of belief, obviously. This is why right doctrine and right theology are so important. Doctrine is just a belief system. Guarding your doctrine, understanding your doctrine, knowing what you believe is really important. We have a doctrinal statement that you can find on our website today when you get home. And because we were sister churches with Valley Church, we just adopted theirs. And we're reworking it to make sure that it's exactly how we want it to be. But these are the things that are the non-negotiables. We'll negotiate whether we do a certain song or not. We'll negotiate whether Dave wears a tie or buttons or not. We'll negotiate other kinds of things. But these things on a doctrinal statement are non-negotiable. I would challenge you, if you move from here tomorrow and go set up shop in Montana somewhere and you're church shopping, the first and most primary thing you ought to look at is, what's their belief system? What are the things they believe and hold to as a church and say, we will not bend or waver on this? That's right doctrine. Right theology is just your knowledge of God, how you view God, who God is. And that's why this is so important, because you can end up finding yourself siding with the enemy, perhaps inadvertently. This is why this morning is so important. I expect opposition when I teach God's Word in a place like this. I just do. I expect spiritual opposition. I expect physical opposition. Sunday morning teaching, gathering and hearing and learning from God's Word is unimaginably important. And that's why scriptures tell us to do it. You know what else is important? When you meet in community groups, when you gather for BSF, when you're in a little Bible study at lunchtime with your workmates, when you as a couple or as a family open God's Word and study it and look for answers in it. That is unimaginably important to your life. Because you're developing a right belief system. You're developing a right theology from that. Listen to these scriptures. Colossians chapter chapter 1, Paul's writing to a church. And he says this. He says this. And we pray, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Catch this. Growing in the knowledge of of God. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3:18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a constant ping of these writers of the Bible that say grow in knowledge, grow in knowledge, grow in knowledge. Is it just for academic sake? Absolutely not. Is it just because you want to publish an article? Of course not. Your doctrine and your theology will flow right into how you live your life. And so it's imperative that we keep growing in that. All right, so what this group was holding to in this particular situation was spiritual lineage. They were, they were holding tightly to a widely held assumption that because we were born of Abraham, because I have the bloodline of Israel, I'm safe and secure and I'm in. They were holding to a widely held assumption that Jesus didn't just come in and challenge. He's coming in and destroying the widely held assumption because it was a lie and because it had steered them astray. Here's Here's what people hold tightly to today. Very few of you in this room would say, I'm safe because I'm a bloodline of Abraham. Most of you don't get confused by that. Most of you don't say, well, that's why I'm saved and I'm good because of that. That culturally made sense there. Here's what it makes sense to today, though, is that what happens is people begin to hold tightly to and place absolute rules on things that God hasn't and think that because of these things, because of these items in their life or lack of it, they're in and they're safe with God. 
Here are just a smattering of examples. Entertainment, music, movies. I do or don't go and see these types of things. Mode of educating children is a hot one right now. Private school, homeschool, public school, no school. I don't know. I mean, they're just, you know, and, and holding to that and beginning to place absolutes on that. Food and alcohol consumption, style of worship, style of dress, style of hair. You take all these cultural things, and what happens is people begin to develop this kind of a theology. Something that goes along like this. I'm a church-going, non-smoking, non-drinking, non-R-rated movie-attending, suit-wearing, KJV-only, Bible-toting Republican whose kids are homeschooled and buy only American-made cars. (laughs) Thus, I'm in tight with God. Now, is anything that I just read wrong? Absolutely not. But is it a lie to think that because you're any and all of those or not any or all of those, that you're a Christian? And that's what makes a Christian? That's where we get really into some problems. Because the very people God came to save are the people that we say, man, that guy bought a Japanese car. Clearly, he's not in our church. He's not allowed. Not allowed. He's not allowed. And it sounds silly, but take your thing and, and, and fit it on it. Here's the principle. Where the Bible speaks in absolutes, you do too. When the Bible says this is absolutely wrong, you say, okay, it's absolutely wrong. Where the Bible is silent, you are too. And so you just take that and say that's a freedom for someone else. Now, there are principles on how we use our freedom, and we could get into a whole big discussion on that. But bottom line is, if the Bible speaks in absolutes, we will, as a church, speak in absolutes. Or the Bible is silent on it and allows freedom, we'll allow freedom. And so that creates a, a fairly diverse congregation that, that gathers together. That's why a doctrinal statement is so incredibly valuable. Let's move on. The reality is, Jesus comes in, and Jesus knows all this. He's God. So he says, you know what? The reality is, is that God did install Israel as the people of God. Abraham did play an incredibly key and important role. But, and here's the big but, what was meant as, as a responsibility and obligation to the nations, you are to be a blessing to the nations. You are to be a pathway of life to the nations around you because you are the people of God. Here's what that degraded into. It degraded into a feelings of superiority. It degraded into feelings of privilege. And it degraded into a false sense of protection. Throughout church history, church leaders are known for this. It's a privilege and a responsibility and a high calling to be a pastor and to be a teacher of God's word. And as a young pastor who's watched a lot of pastors go through life and read a lot about church history, the reality is is that that position can sometimes degrade into a false sense of protection. It can degrade into a sense of privilege and power and all of this kind of stuff. But it's not just for a pastor. It's for a child of God. It's for every single child of God to remember that. Not we're in, and literally, I'm not being crass here, but to the hell with everyone else. That's sometimes what I think Christians feel when a church builds its walls up nice and high and everything points inward. And with every fiber of my being, we are trying to build a church and begging God to say, do not, do not, do not let that happen here. That's what last week was all about with making disciples. That's our purpose. So even as Jesus taught, people are believing. But even as he taught and people are believing, there's a smugness there. There's this pride there that he goes after. He goes in and exposes it. He starts to press the issue. And you say, well, why does Jesus do this? Remember from last week, Jesus embodied what it means to give every word for the benefit of the listener. You know what Jesus is doing in this passage? Let's not forget it. He's making disciples. That's what he's doing. By ramping up the argument, he's making disciples. That it may give grace to those who hear it. The first thing these people needed was to undo the lie that they were safe because of some bloodline. And so he goes after it, and he attacks it. And he's making disciples as he confronts them, as their face starts to get red, and as the volume of this conversation just starts to ramp up. That's what he's doing. Let's keep reading. Um, Actually, let's not keep reading quite yet. (laughs) 
Look at verse 31. I just want to read this again. I want to shift our, our thoughts here to, to belief. This passage is interesting because it really does show that there, there are different levels of belief. There are different kinds of belief and faith that the Bible talks about. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If Jesus believed in something called easy believism, where it's like, let's just get as many people to say the words, I believe in Jesus, so it can build a big church, he'd be working against himself right here. But instead, to those who believed and took an initial step, he actually made the bar higher and harder and challenged them with things. Now, Jesus has the benefit of knowing everyone's heart, which we don't all the time. But here's what I want to bring out with this. You say, well, isn't it true that we simply believe in Jesus and we're saved? Let me just throw that out. Is that true or not true? What? Randy, that's exactly it. Thank you. I'll just continue because that's the right answer. Everyone else was wrong. Um, You know what? It's a starting point. Is it essential? Absolutely. Every time I would ever share the gospel, I say, it's as simple a thing that... That my eight-year-old can figure this out. It's that simple. Simply put your trust in Jesus. Believe in Him. And you will be saved. But as you read the Bible, and as you grow, and as God's Holy Spirit comes in, He begins to enlighten your brain that, as Randy pointed out, it's a starting point. It's like saying this, I've got a brand newborn baby. Isn't it true that all you need for life is breathing? Um, Sort of. It's a start. And when they take that first big breath, as a dad in the room, you're like, yes, the lungs work. That's a great sign because that's no guarantee there. But you don't go, done. What's next? (laughs) Right? That's a starting point. There's food, and there's walking, and there's training up in righteousness, and there's a world to discover. Do you ever stop breathing? No, it's essential to life. Do you ever stop believing as a Christian? No. But 20 years later, if all you can claim to is, I filled a card out one time and I believed, past tense, you're like a bizarre, full-grown newborn. Just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's a starting point. The Bible distinguishes between belief and saving belief this way, and I won't have time to unpack all of this, but it talks about knowledge, that there's a basic understanding of the, of, the, of the Bible. That involves your intellect or your mind. But if that's all you ever keep it at, all that qualifies for you is a demon. Because it says in James, even the demons believe and they shudder. So there's something more than that. I think this group had started, started to get this way with him. They believed in Jesus. Was it a saving faith? Of course not, or else he wouldn't have called them children of Satan, right? So we know there's something more. The Bible also talks about assent, not just knowledge, but assent, affirming the facts to be true indeed. This involves your emotion. This begins to take your heart and capture it and say, not only do I know this is true in my head, I just know this is true. I'm giving assent to it. And the third and final part of it is trust. That's simply acting on these truths. And that involves your will. Do you see how important it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength? It involves the intellect. It involves your emotion. It involves your will. Take this needle right here. There might be belief that says, I'm sure that that does help people, but you aren't going to stick that in my body. You believe, but you don't really believe, do you? It's something totally different to take that needle and go, here you go, doc, jam it in. That's involving an act of your will. It involves a lot of emotion, maybe not positive emotion, but there's different levels of belief. These Jews had elements of belief, but in a way they were, they were directed at the wrong person. Their belief was in a false Messiah. It was a false savior. It was in Abraham. Abraham's a good thing, Right? A lot of people believe in things, but they're, they believed in the wrong thing. I've actually talked to people who I really believe their God is the Bible. The, their God has become a book that God revealed himself through. 
Is the Bible a good thing? I think the Bible is a great thing. It's one of the greatest miracles we have in our presence. But you can stop the journey and not end up at home base because you've set up shop and developed your whole life around a benchmark pointing to this relationship with God. Abraham was a pointer. Abraham was a pointer to the Messiah. Abraham wanted people to move on past him. People can do that with Bible teachers. Who are you? I'm a MacArthurite. You are? What is that? Well, it's a guy who believes in John MacArthur. Well, that's a lousy deal. Because John MacArthur is a person. He's going to die one day. And that's bizarre. That's a cult. That's a total false gospel. Well, I mean, I believe in Jesus, too. Oh, and I think we can do that with things. And certainly these Jews had set up shop under the heading of Abraham, and it was a bad deal. Look at verse 42. We'll keep reading. After proclaiming back, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God. Here's what 42 picks up. It says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. That's a good thing to say at a dinner party, just kind of ramp things up. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus is calling them to move beyond belief. Beyond mere belief says this. Let me just reveal to you by your lifestyle who you're really serving. Let me tell you who you're in love with. You are in a relationship with your father, the devil. Now, that just sounds really harsh and painful, but here's the reality. There are two families, as the Bible describes it. You're in the family of Satan and darkness, or you're in the family of God and the light. And there's no middle ground. But they're really nice people, but they do cool things. The Bible makes it really clear, really black and white. John goes on in his epistles, his first, second, and third Johns, to get even more radical with that. He begins to say things like this. If you don't love other people, you don't love God. Don't make a sham of it. Don't lie about it. And so Jesus is calling them to task here. Jesus is pointing out who their father is. He's calling them to move beyond belief, and he does that for us as well. He calls you and I to move beyond knowledge, beyond intellect, beyond knowing the right Sunday school answer to something, but to something deeper, to something more. Let me keep reading. Verse 48 and 50, he, he throws out, I'm going to read the second of, of two here, but he, he talks about two promises that we can find in John chapter 8. Look at verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? We could go into that, but it's racial slur. It's like trash talking on the football field. But beyond that, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father. Quick little point of how to handle conflict, name calling, personal attack. You know what I would have done right there? I would have just been like, and set one of the guy's hair on fire or something and go, now, let me explain. I mean, I don't know. And that's why God didn't choose me to be Jesus. Um, But you know what he does? He just says flatly, no, I'm not. Now, let's move on to the real issue. You see how it's the benefit of the listener. He's making disciples. He could have just destroyed them in any one of these scenarios verbally. And yet he just keeps bringing it back to this prime issue. It's remarkable how Jesus handles name-calling and personal attack. And I have a long way to grow with that. Verse 48. Uh, Verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. 
I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here are the two promises. Look back in verses 31 and 32. There's a promise there for us. Here it is. If you hold to my teaching, if you are really my disciples. Verse 32. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's this idea of abiding in God's word that Jesus is saying, then you are a true disciple of mine. All through the scripture is this this picture of perseverance and holding on. We're going to get to John 15 where it talks about abiding. And if you're a true part of the vine, you just keep on hanging on. You had a great year last year. You didn't get too full of yourself. You didn't say, fine, now I'm up and running. God, I'll see you later. You keep on abiding. If you had a miserable year last year, you didn't go, where are you, God? You haven't shown up. I'm letting go. No, you kept on abiding. You held on. You kept on keeping on. And it reveals that you're a true disciple. I bumped into a buddy of mine who I knew from a youth group who started a company that's doing insanely well because he got the idea a long time ago that if you make products that augment the Mac, like iPod accessories and all that kind of stuff, there's a ton of money to be made. So he started this company called Dr. Bot, which distributes all this stuff. And this guy shows up. I I see him every year, once a year at Macworld. And I look at him. I say, man, we've got to talk about our families a little bit. His wife's there with him. They have three beautiful kids. You know what he's doing? He's keeping on. He's still trusting the, the Lord. He's abiding by his word. And I just go, man, from that high school days of youth group back at Los Gatos Christian... It's just getting more and more rare to find those that are hanging on. And I just go, what an encouragement you are to me, man. I love that you're still walking with the Lord. I can't tell you how that blesses me. And you know what? I didn't think this audibly, but I I was pondering this. You want to find out who a true disciple is? Just fast forward to the end of time. That's how you do it. So you know what makes it challenging if you're working with youth right now? Well, who's in and who's out? I don't know. I haven't fast-forwarded time yet. How about in here? That's why we can't waste our time judging. Oh, she's in or he's out or whatever. You know what? Keep on keeping on. A true disciple will just keep on keeping on because they have a regenerate heart and they just keep on keeping on. Their father is God. Second promise is found in verse 50. It says, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus always tells the truth. And in these two promises are things for us that are imperative to discover, imperative to hang on to. We talked about hostility. We are at war and the enemy is Satan. You know, one of the key strategies of Satan is just to lie. It is. It's really simple. One of his schemes is just to get you to believe A lie. And here's how they come. They come in the form of all kinds of different things. One of the most deadly lies is this. You are right with God when you aren't. These people, if you just read, if you have the red letter edition, you just start reading the black words in our section today. You see this, verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be free? Verse 39. Abraham is our father. Verse 41, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. They just keep coming back with it. We're good. We're in. How dare you say that about me? I've been an elder for 39 years at this church. And they just keep coming back with this. And the reason Jesus won't let it go and just walk away is that lie is going to lead them to their death. He just exposes all of us by saying, you know what? If any of you sins, you're a slave to sin. We get that. I made a New Year's resolution. It's January 9th today or whatever. I've already broken it. I can't keep it myself. You were never meant to. So Jesus is going after the lie. Jesus knows this and he just he goes in. Here's here's what happens in our in our in our lives, I think, is that they sneak in as assumptions. There was somehow a thought that began to to take root such that when Jesus showed up on the scene, there was this widely held common knowledge 
that because you're an Abraham, a, a descendant of Abraham, you're in. And Jesus wants to rip that apart. He wants to say, no, that's not the truth. Go back to the Word. Look at the Reformation. What happened there? Someone read their Bible and had the Spirit of God and said, we've got this all wrong. This is a false assumption. This common knowledge is not knowledge at all. It's a lie. And it sneaks in as a subtlety. It sneaks in as a repeated rhetoric that just begins to be true. There are things in our culture right now today that 20 years ago, growing up, everyone would have said, no, that's totally bogus, that's wrong. Now it's common knowledge. Because there's always a character in the sitcom who's acting this way or that way. And that just weaves itself into the mindset of a culture. Satan employs the exact same strategy today. It began in the garden with this. Did God really say? It's subtle. It's cunning. But what happens is he he works on people with their false identity that they were handed in childhood. And he just keeps needling away on that. The shame that sin brings and the separation that sin brings, he just keeps pinging away on that. And it's that same thing. Did God really say? And it's this subtle lie that we begin to believe about ourselves. How do you combat Satan's lies? Here it is. Really simple. You replace the lie with the truth of God. I don't know what your issue is today, but let me use my daughter Cassie as an example. One of the things that they've studied, not Christians, just sociologists have discovered about adopted kids, is that they tend to have a really difficult time bonding to people even beyond just basic parent thing, because they didn't have it growing up. And there's something hardwired in us as kids that when we don't have that from age zero to one, zero to two, that something gets fundamentally broken in there, and then these same kids who have this issue have attachment disorder kinds of issues. That means a normal friendship that I might have with Chris, there's a little distrust there with Chris that isn't there in the average person. Think about what that looks like when you stand at the altar and say, I do, to the one you've chosen to be a life mate with. And I believe the enemy will take that kind of knowledge and just go after that and ping away at that and hand that to that person and keep that person in bondage. Isn't it clear to see how bonding that is? How enslaved you would be? How do you combat that? You just replace that with God's truth. A person in that condition hears that God will never leave them or forsake them, and they go, I want to believe it so bad, but I know it's not true. I can't even explain it, but it's not true. It can't be true. And until God comes in and heals that place, they have a hard time even with the Father. We've been very cautious with Cassie leaving her We took a retreat in February of last year in anticipation of knowing we will not have a weekend away for a a little while now because we are committed to being at home with Cassie and not letting her be out of our sight much of the time. You know why? We are communicating to Cassie. You have someone in your life now that's permanent, that's not going anywhere. And long before Cassie could understand this, Becky would look at Cassie and say this. She'd say, Mommy's always going to come back. Mommy's not going anywhere. And I say the same thing. We'd go out to the store. She'd go out to the store and I'd have her and she'd be a mess. She would just melt down at that. So we'd call Mommy and she'd look at the phone and be super excited. And then Becky would come back home. And we want to pour into Cassie the truth that says there's a God just like us who will pick you out and we will not leave you. You have to trust that. You won't see us for little seasons of time because we do need date nights. And you will figure this out. But we're coming back. We're here for you. And we're going to harp on that issue in her life. And we're going to guard her and protect her and stack the deck in her favor for the rest of her life, knowing that will be a key issue that the rest of our kids, 
Yeah, they don't struggle with it. They've always had it. This issue of lying is something that's there and prevalent. Replace the lie with God's truth. Do you see how growing in the knowledge of God is so imperative? It's not just to fill your head with a bunch of facts. It's to take the lie and replace it with the truth of God. When you come across something about God that doesn't jive with what you know to be true of God, you need to sit there and go, man, maybe I need to alter my view of God and be taught a more excellent way, a more complete way, a more picture of, of, of God that I didn't understand before. That's why being in community with one another and walking with one another in this is so incredibly important. I want to just point out two more things that Jesus did in this, and that is this. In verse 46, he makes these two claims about himself. Remember this whole series is revealing who God is? You know what he says in verse 46? Essentially, he says this, I am perfect. He just got done telling his opponents, every one of you is a slave because you sin. And now he's inviting inspection. Which one of you can point to sin in my life? Huh? How about it? Now, if I asked that, you'd be like, oh, there's a line. I, you offended me two weeks ago, and, you know, my wife would be the first in line. She could point out all kinds of things about me. Here's Jesus with his opponents. Which of you can, can point out falsehood in me? They were, they were mute on that point. They didn't even attack that. They kept away from that. They couldn't think of anything because there wasn't anything there to be found. He's making two revelation points. I am perfect. And the second one is found in verse 58. Let's just read the end here. Verse 54, uh, verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. Some verses say this. Some versions say truly, truly. And that's kind of like him saying this. Hey, everyone listen up. What I'm about to say is super, super important. Everyone listening? Here it is. And then he says this, before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> now, the reason that they pick up rocks to kill him in verse 59, and that's how we end our nice bedtime story today, <laughs> is that what he was doing there, he was using the name of God. He was claiming pre-existence to Abraham. Abraham was their trump card. He was the highest thing they could imagine. And he goes, and they just, they couldn't get it. But he reveals in verse 46, I am perfect. He reveals in verse 50, I am God. And that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely. Read the Gospels. It's all through there. Here's the application. And I don't want you to miss the application. Band, come on up. Don't get distracted by the band coming up. Focus and stay with me for a couple more minutes. How do I hold to Jesus' teaching? And keep his word. I want to be a true disciple. I want this freedom. I want to walk in life. How do I do it? Listen to Psalm 119.10. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I meet so many people who would say, yes, that's my heartbeat. That's what I want. I want that so bad. But I keep failing. How do you do it? Here's the next part. The very next verse says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you keep to my word, you are my true disciple. Then you'll know the truth and the truth is going to set you free. Do you see why pastors and your parents and your Bible teachers at Christian school harp on staying in the word? On how imperative it is to read your Bible? We have a memory verse this week. It's right there in your bulletin. It couldn't be more easy for you as an individual, for you as a family, to begin memorizing God's Word. God's Word is about reading, about meditating, about memorizing, about studying, and about applying. That's what we mean when a pastor says, get into the Word. Feed yourself. And if you don't know what to memorize, every single week this coming year, for the most part, you will have in your bulletin a verse to memorize. It's not just flippantly tossed out. It's key and critical. 
Memorize John 8.31 this week. As we sing these last couple songs and dismiss, I want to just ask you, what lie has the murderer bound you with? The problem is, most of us can't see it in ourselves. That's why community is so important. That's why my men's group is so important for me. That we're together on this. Jesus was at his hometown church one time. And some scrolls were handed him to be read. You know what he read? Catch this. He's at his hometown church in Nazareth. He opens up to Isaiah chapter 61. And here's what he reads. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin and releases us from the prison of darkness that we're in. God, would you help us? We're desperate for you this morning, Lord. Each one of us have chains this year that grieve your heart. Each one of us is bound in some sin. Each one of us, Lord, has lies that we've bought into and have somehow woven their way so deep into the fabric of our life that we don't know how to rid ourselves of it. We invite your Holy Spirit into our life. We invite the truth of your word to come in and to carve out the falsehood that's there, that's destroying us. Lord, we pray for perseverance this year. We pray for those of us sitting in this room that halfway through the year, three quarters of the way through the year, on into next year and the next, that we're still here holding on to you. And we desperately need you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to sing this song right now. Amazing grace, my chains are gone.